Well, good morning. Happy New Year to you. Well, at the end of this month, we're actually going to begin a new sermon series on the book of Romans. But before we do, given some of the destabilizing things that we have faced the last few years with changes in our meeting place due to COVID and challenges over whether a live stream service constitutes actual worship or families moving out of state, the session has asked that I would actually address a few core topics about the church, specifically what the church is, why we should love and fight for the church, this all with a capital C, and what it means to be a member in the church. So today our, our passage is 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Would you turn there and stand with me as I read God's holy and perfect word 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for specifically this part of your word that reminds us of the role that the church plays with regard to the church, uh, the truth, as, as well as the fact that it is your church, uh, the church of the living God. Help us to have attentive ears and receptive minds today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I love this passage here in, in Timothy. Paul is saying to this young man that Paul served for him as a, as a mentor and a pastor, that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. He doesn't say the apostles or you know, link that to any particular individual, but he says the church. And it's a pretty lofty statement. Many of you have heard the term buttress before, but may not know what it is. In the Greek, the word is hydriamon refers to this extension from a wall. Uh, those of you who are contractors or builders know sometimes you have to support a wall with an extension, often of stone or, or of wood that attaches both to the wall into the ground. And it's intended to uh, help support it against shear forces, you know, forces of wind and rain and so on. I remember when we first built the pergola in the backyard, my, my nightmare, the first night of thinking that that 20 foot high, you know, what must be several tons heavy structure might in those 40 mile per hour winds, some of which we had last night, would just come crashing down on someone. And so uh, for us, the buttress was actually these angled uh, steel plates that we drilled into the wall and then held onto the sides of the pergola. A few months ago, we celebrated a Reformation night. Same principle. We built this door, remember, as a prop. Well, the prop would have promptly fallen flat if we had not put buttresses behind it, these angled two-by-fours that we uh, attached to the back of the door and then down to the base. And that's what it's about. It's about supporting it against things like wind and snow and weight, and so to call a church a buttress is to say that the church is intended to hold the truth steady against those forces that would try to knock it down, 
and knock it flat. A pillar, that's more familiar to you. It's a column upon which a roof sits and holds that roof high so that everyone can see it clearly from a distance. And Paul is describing the church as this institution where Christ has established this people to display the truth and to hold it steady, to protect it. And the apostles, you know, they could not have imagined anyone safely living the Christian life outside of the church. Because outside the church was the world. It was the system that still was under the dominion of Satan and sin. But by being in union with the body of Christ, participating regularly at the Lord's table, hearing the word preached, being edified by the gifts of fellow believers, being led by spirit-filled shepherds, the likelihood of of getting blown off course by every wind of doctrine. Well, that was greatly diminished. And so it was expected. Everyone would be a part of the household of God. And assumes that being an active, joyful member of a local church, you know, that manifestation of the church with a capital C, but in that particular area, was normal, that was normative and necessary. And if that's true then why is it so easy for Christians to not bother with attending church on Sunday mornings and instead simply download the latest sermon from their favorite author or pastor or watch something televised? After all, it allows us to sleep in, right? It allows us to let the kids nap, and we can, after all, as, as parents of young children, actually pay closer attention to what's being said. They actually catch the whole sermon. Why go to the effort of packing up all the kids and hassling with getting everyone to church only to miss a portion of the service by dealing with issues and being distracted? Those are great questions. And some professing Christians may be surprised to hear that the scriptures give us such a high view of the church. Jesus founded the church. He died for the church. He identifies intimately with it. But you might say, but Jesus founded a kingdom. He established a kingdom. He died for individuals. What do you mean died for the church? Isn't that a bit Catholic? Well, the Bible may change your thoughts. Because the church didn't just happen as some random occurrence. One of Jesus' main aims during his ministry was to gather together a people. As he told Peter, I will build what? My church. I will build my church. Why? Well, to answer that question, I'm going to take you all the way back to the beginning. And I'll start with a question. It might seem like it comes out of left field. But why did God create Eve? Bible tells us that God created Eve because it was not good that Adam should be alone. If you knew that answer, that is good. He created Eve so that together she and Adam would accomplish the, the mandate that God had given them to subdue and rule over the earth. They were to work together to construct this earthly culture, right, together that would reflect what was heavenly culture. They were to represent God and his character. And the Lord did not, of course, mean for Adam and Eve to accomplish all of that by themselves. He told them, be fruitful 
multiply, fill the earth. And, and when he said that, he, he knew that ruling the earth presupposed multiplying to fill it because they would need help themselves. And when Adam's and Eve's children had grown, they were in turn to form separate households, which would in turn pursue the same calling. Together there would be an entire race of rulers to share his rule over the creation. But, of course, sin and and God's judgment disrupts that immediate fulfillment. And so God had created a unified human race, but... What results because of sin is a divided human race. And not only is it divided, it's in conflict. And as we learned last week, since Adam and Eve, the seed of the serpent, has, has waged this unceasing war against the seed of the woman. And God did not immediately reunify all of them. Instead, he began to gather together a peculiar people, is what we read in the Old Testament. This people, Israel, as a nation, was to be this instrument for the reunification, the redemption of the rest of humanity. And from that nation would come a new man, the Messiah, and through him a people that would minister to all the nations. We start hearing descriptions like Israel will be a nation of of priests and rulers, a royal priesthood. Her commission will be to be a model to, to the nations and the whole race is intended to be a unified people worshiping the Lord, living in obedience to him, ruling the earth to his glory. As God told Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Everywhere in the Old Testament, the nations were called to follow the example of Israel by worshiping and serving God, submitting to his good commandments. And, and yet, what do we find? Despite times of faithfulness, primarily the history of Israel is one of failure. She doesn't live up to God's requirements. She's called to be this peculiar people, to stand out from the rest of the world. But instead, she begins to become a mirror of the divided rest of humanity. Instead of worshiping God, she turns to idols. Though called to be a royal nation, eventually she ends up in slavery, in exile. But the prophets, they hold out hope for reunification of the divided people. They look forward to the coming of the Messiah, the recreation of the people of God. And so when Jesus came, as again, as we've seen the last few weeks, he's called the second Adam. And it wasn't just because, like the original Adam, he would be tested in obedience of the Father. It was also because he had a similar commission to subdue and rule over the earth. We see that in the book of Daniel, to the Son of Man is given dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth forever. So why did God create Eve? Or more generically, why did he create woman? Because it was not good that man should be alone. Why does the Bible describe the church as a woman? As a bride? Because it is not good that Jesus should be alone in his mandate. Because the church is Jesus' helpmeet, if you will, in fulfilling the original commission given to Adam. And I think we miss that part. Partly because we're not as literate in our Bible knowledge, but also because it's so easy to fall into that mindset of the independent and individualistic spirit of our age. The church, though, is not just a gathering of sovereign Self-interested people. 
It's a bride and more. And I can't in our time together this morning possibly convey everything that is profound and lovely and amazing about the church that Christ established. There is a great passage that gives us some insight. It's familiar to us. We've looked at it before in Matthew 16. It's actually one of the only two places where you'll find the word church in the Gospels. In Matthew 16, starting with verse 13, we read that when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Kind of their, them, their spirit, their personality in Jesus. And he said to them, but, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. Another word for Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Okay, this, is, this is not something you would just get from pure experience or you know, intuition. But God has revealed this to you. My Father in heaven has revealed it to you. But notice that Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. You're Petros, and on this rock, which is what Petros means, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the kings of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I think these words are significant for at least two reasons. First, this is not a casual statement. This is the high point of his ministry, right? This is the key question, the question that... When the demons had proclaimed earlier, and he said, be quiet, it is not yet time to reveal, essentially, who I am. This is the moment that it comes. Who do you say that I am, Peter? And that, that question should reverberate through the gospel account. Same thing when Pilate is asking him, are you a king? Right? Who is Jesus? So Jesus is asking this all-important question, and the disciples respond properly that he's the Messiah. And that could have been, like I said, that could have been the, com the completion, the, the full answer, and it would have been good. But Jesus says, this is what it means for me to be the Messiah, that I'm going to build a church. And then second, think about how broad-reaching those words are when he says that set against the church will be the gates of hell. And again, we've talked about this before as well, but I do want to remind you, first, that without clarifying it too much, Jesus is setting this, the, the idea of building a church. When he mentions hell and when he's talking about why he's come, he's not just setting it in you know, I came to do a few tasks while I was here during my three-year ministry. He is setting this idea of building the church within this war that we've talked about the last few weeks. That cosmic war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Because 
This is what the seed of the serpent has been fighting against happening. All the way along, this is the moment, right? Can we frustrate God's purposes so that this, the building of the church, does not happen? But also, this idea of the gates of hell. You know from Genesis 19.1, for example, you've, you've seen gates Two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. 2 Samuel 19, 8, King David arose and sat in the gate. What is that? I've explained before that the gates are the place where people conducted the administrative business of the city. It's where the king would be expected to sit and render judgment. It's where when David having returned from exile, had locked himself into his palace to mourn the death of his son Absalom, the people began to to become discontent and concerned because they could not see him in his normal place as king in the gate. And so he is reminded by his advisors, you've got to go back out there. You've got to show your face. You need to be in the place of judgment and ruler. Not at the palace, but in the gate. So what does the gate represent? It represents the administrative power of judging and and ruling of hell. It's really saying that I'm going to build my church on this type of faith that you have, Peter. I'm going to build my church and just as hell has been against God's purposes all along in fighting against the seed of the woman, when it comes to this, everything that hell has is going to be thrown against this. But they will not prevail. They will fail. And then in Ephesians 3, Paul builds upon that thought. He describes how Christ came down and broke the wall that have been between the Jews and the Gentiles and and that he made them into one church. He made them into one people through his death on the cross. And then then in chapter 3, again, a familiar passage where Paul briefly describes the essence of this life work. And it's one of my favorite passages as well. And Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. It has not been made known to the sons of men in other generations, but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And it's what? It's that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. They're members of the same body. They are part of the church. And of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace given to me by the working of his power. I'm the least of all these saints, he says. But this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Just. This is my 
parentheses? Was it just to say, hey, the Jews have something special. They have some scriptures. They have the word of God. Was that what the preaching was about? No, the, the message was God has intended for you as a people of faith to join with the people of Israel who are of faith to become a church. That is the mystery that was hidden for ages. It was in God who created all things so that through the church, it says, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And the point is this. Most of us live our lives with so little awareness of the amazing realities about around us. We think of churches at place that we go on Sunday mornings, where we see our friends, where we worship together, where we leave refreshed for the week ahead. We talk about think, church and those things, kind of getting recharged for the day before I go back out into the world. We look at many of America's churches, we end up distracted by the reality that the church is the most powerful institution on this planet. And then what happens as a result? Our lives, I think, lack the flavor of eternity. The aroma of something ultimate, special. And we just go back to life, living moment to moment, trying to survive the day. But that wasn't what Jesus did. You could not be around him long until you felt there's something different about this man. Not just the things that he spoke, but every part of his life was part of a divine plan. He knew it. It made him zealous, passionate about things. Paul was like that too. As we see him here in this passage of Ephesians, he said, I'm the least of the saints, and yet God has given me this, this ministry, and I will dedicate my life. I am a prisoner, a bond slave for this purpose. And it's stated there in, in verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. In Matthew 16, Jesus described the church as in conflict with the gate of hell. Here, Paul says that the mission of the church is to display before the hosts of heaven, including even those uh, of hell, the manifold wisdom of God. And so, friends, we are the church. We are the light of the world. That's what Paul says. But not merely that, we are the light of the whole created order, both seen and unseen with this spectacular mission to reveal the wisdom of God. Every time we gather together, we are on display. On display before the world. In Daniel 7, one of the most important passages in Scripture we read, I was watching the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, 
And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. And so what do we have here? You've got this great scene, don't you, of principalities and powers. We saw those mentioned in Ephesians 3. Here's the Ancient of Days seated on a throne. We see nations, all peoples, languages of the earth. We see myriads of angels. We even see the forces of Satan symbolized by the horn that speaks against the Lord in verse 11. And the Son of Man in Daniel's vision is presented before all of these and he is given dominion over the earth so that all peoples and nations will worship him and serve him. And when Jesus, as we saw, talked about a few weeks ago, is on trial before the high priest, he's asked, are you the son of man? He says, what? Yes, I am. And you, in case you didn't catch the fact that I just said yes, and I did agree with you, the son of man, and I know what you're talking about when you use that phrase, son of man, that you're referring to Daniel 7, he says, and you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. And so there can't be any mistaken that Jesus was just saying, yes, I'm a human being. He was identifying with Daniel chapter 7. He was saying, I am the one who is exalted by the ancient of days, who is given dominion over all the earth. Are you a king? Yes, I am. The king of kings. In the Daniel 7 verse 27, an angel interprets this vision for Daniel. It says, the kingdom... And dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. All right, now, you need to noodle over this for a second, okay? Earlier in Daniel 7, Jesus, the Son of Man, is given the dominion. In verse 27, the angel interprets it and says that the dominion is given to the people, the saints of the Most High. What does that mean? It's not a contradiction. What it's saying is that the Son of Man is so related to this group of individuals known as the saints of the Most High that His rule, the Son of Man's rule, is done through rule by this corporate body of saints. Does that make sense? It's so important. By connecting the title Son of Man with discussion of the church in Matthew 16, Jesus says, the church is the fulfillment of the kingdom of God's arrival in all of its glory through him, the Son of Man. And that we, as the saints, we represent him before all peoples, all nations, all languages. And in so in plain view of all the earth, all of heaven, all of hell, the church makes manifest the wisdom of God, rules on behalf of their king, King Jesus. And that is just part of the mystery. That gets revealed by the church. It gets even better in Ephesians chapter 2. 
Starting in verse 12, Paul says to the Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So yes, the Gentiles were included with the Jewish people as part of this new community, but the even more profound mystery of Christ is that in his death on the cross, Jesus purchases eternal life for those who are his enemies. And he redeems and he forms a new people. So friends, I mean, yes, it is fantastic that we rule as the corporate body of saints, as representatives of Jesus, the King of Kings. Yes, it is wonderful that Jew and Gentile are all included in this, this body of people called the church, the household of God, the family of God, the bride of Christ. Yes, that is wonderful. But if it were all just horizontally focused with regard to the nations, that would not capture the fullness of what it means to be the church because we are the redeemed people of God. We are the people who have not only been united with one another, but have been brought near to the Lord from whom we were exiled all the way back at the Garden of Eden. And so the very hope of man that began at that point, and God made that promise in Genesis 3.15 that one day he would crush the head of the serpent. The very promise that he had that that intimacy would be restored, all of that gets accomplished and it is fully realized in the church. And how is it realized in the church? Well, it's realized as redeemed people filled with the Holy Spirit live in uncommon, peculiar unity with one another, edifying with each other with their gifts. Living as a family was meant to live. And we live in the midst of a society in which family is broken, in which relationships are broken. And so we are this new order. We are this, this magnet. We are this example that is meant to transform the world, to do battle against hell. And it's such an amazing thing that we hold high in this mission and display this truth. And we hold the church, the church holds steady the truth. So the stakes are high. If the church is so important, then we have to see being a part of the church as something more important than Sunday morning attendance if we have a free schedule or we're not too tired. And even that's not quite right because it's not even seeing the church as important as if we mump it up on our list of priorities and we make church fit in. It's about being the church. It's about being so amazed by the love of God and what he has purposed over millennia, what he has done, and looking back in that big picture view of the Bible and saying, wow, look at what God did to get here. Look how important it was to the Lord, and it makes it important to us because we realize the stakes are that high. It's about saying that if Jesus would so strongly say 
that being the Messiah meant that I will build my church, then we, because we love the Lord, surely that will be important to us. And it's why Paul says that he prays in Ephesians here 3.16 that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through a spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that that then making you rooted and grounded in love, you will have the strength to comprehend, not just by yourself, but with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. It's what it means to live as the church. We are comprehending this on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis, what it is meant This love of Christ, the fullness of God. And so my questions to you this morning are, how do you view the church? Do you see it as an obligation? Are you distracted by all the things that you don't like about being a part of the church? Do you live with kind of a low-grade suspicion of the church? Do you still kindle or hold on to past offenses or regrets? Have you lost a sense of your mission? There's a simple way to test those questions and your answers. Do you desperately need God and believe you need the rest of us to accomplish whatever you believe to be your mission for him? Do you need us? Do you need the household of God? There's no other way to become the mature and victorious bride of Christ. Do you believe that aside from God showing up and showing the way, and aside from people laying down their lives with and for you, working as we're rooted and grounded in love to comprehend the fullness of God that we simply will not get done, what we are called to do to tear down these strongholds, to resist the gates of hell? In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul calls the church the household of God. We are a family that needs one another. And the angels, the forces of hell, the world, they are watching. Why? Because Satan knows too well what God has done, is doing, and will do. He knows too well what happens when families break down. And it's why he can oppose God so effectively in the world. But friends, we have been given the Holy Spirit and we've been given the church. And your gift, your part in this body may seem small, but realize that as part of the eternal revelation of God's glory, your part is taking on significance and, and proportions that are more than just what you do in a specific moment in time to serve this group of people. We've seen what is at stake. And I'll just read to you this quote from John Piper. In closing, the church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. He says, I don't say that lightly. The assembly of the redeemed the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, organization, or nation. 
The United States of America pales in significance with the Church of Jesus Christ. All the pageantry of a New Year's Rose Parade in Pasadena or the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade in New York fade into a formless gray against the splendor of the Bride of Christ. Lift up your eyes, Christians. You belong to a society that will never cease to the apple of God's eye, to the eternal church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's my challenge to you this morning. To think upon that, to meditate upon that, and if you are struggling with some of those questions that I asked earlier about how you view the church, to pray that the Lord would change that. Let us be the church in 2023. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your wisdom, your word, the gift of the church, the reality of what you established, what you meant to accomplish, the fact that you work so powerfully through the church. Lord, help us to with great reverence and respect for what you've made, with a great desire to participate with, Lord, just a sense of purpose. Help us to live as the household of Christ, the bride of Christ, the people of God. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we have the privilege before we go to the table to witness the baptism of the Walker twins, Kylie and Elsie. And it's a special moment in their family. It's always joyful and celebrative moments with us as a church family, uh, particularly as we see what the Lord is doing in a family like Corey and Hannah's and how God covenants with his people and we see the faithful work that they do in teaching and raising and training their children and how from the earliest moments, uh, their older children have called upon the Lord, just as we would hope when we baptized them years ago. And sometimes we take for granted things like baptism and eating at the Lord's table. But it's times like this that we remember the great blessing of being the church, of being the ecclesia, those who are called out to be a little different. And as we have learned in the past and even talked about today, God has called us to be this community. And, and this community as a household of God includes children, including little ones. And God instituted two signs that symbolize his covenantal relationship with his people, circumcision, Passover. And we believe that God replaced those two signs with the two new ones in Christ of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they point to the same things. They point to the work of God redeeming his people. But unlike the Old Testament sign of circumcision and the Passover, which pointed to the redemption of Israel as a nation and a kind of a localized people, the new sign points to the same God, the same grace, but it ultimately not only points to the work specifically of Christ, but also reminds us that it was a broader scope. Does the faith of each of these little girls matter? After all, they can barely open and focus their eyes right now. 
They certainly are not contemplating the sacrifice of Christ or their need for a Savior. And my answer to that would be, of course, it matters greatly. Just like it mattered if a man was circumcised and had no faith in God. Throughout the time, it was abhorrent to be circumcised and carry the sign of God's relationship to his people and yet have this person rejecting that relationship, right? And the same is true for anyone who bears the sign of baptism with hypocrisy. We all pray for a time when Kylie and Elsie will turn to the Lord in faith, And at that time, the external sign of baptism will be parallel to this inner reality of their trust in God and of a clean conscience before him. And we will continue to remind these girls, and not only them, but also Kendallin and Timothy and Wesley, of the days that we baptize them. We will tell them that they bear the sign of Christ's finished work upon the cross and tell them that they have been sealed to God. And just as the king would place his seal upon the document and thereby show that he owned that document, when we baptize our children, we say that baptism is a type of seal. We declare by that very baptism that our children belong to God. So we tell Kylie and Elsie, Jesus is their Lord. He is their king. We will exhort them to serve him with all their heart, mind, and strength. They belong to him. And they are to serve him. So Corey and Hannah, I'd like you to come on up. And as you do with your family, I'd like to challenge you to do those very things that I've been talking about. In your daily lives, in your conversations around the dinner table, in the books you choose to read, in every part of your life, in every corner of this world, wherever you find yourselves, remind these two little girls about their king and their Lord. And so I'd like to ask you to, on behalf of Kylie and Elsie, do you acknowledge their need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit separate from their baptisms? Do you claim God's covenant promises on their behalf and do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, even as you did your own? Do you unreservedly promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before them a godly example that you will pray with and for them, that you will teach them the doctrines of our faith, that you will strive by all means of God's grace to bring them up in the fear and love of the Lord? And do you as friends and family undertake the responsibility of assisting Corey and Hannah in the Christian nurture of Kendallin and Timothy and Wesley and Kylie and Elsie? If so, please say we do. We do. Amen. Well, it seems like just uh, the other day that you came to our home and you came to surprise us with which, whether it be a boy or a girl and you pulled out of a bag... Well, come here. It's my pleasure to baptize you, Kylie, in the name of the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless you. It is my pleasure to baptize you, LC, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless you both in all that you do. Let me congratulate you and then let me pray for you. Father, we do thank you for the blessing of children. Thank you for the honor of being able to baptize little ones, especially of my own family. And Father, I just pray for blessing upon Corey and Hannah's family, that you would lead them, that you would guide them, that you would uh, prosper them spiritually in all of their lives. We look forward to the day when Kylie and Elsie will be young women who are radiant with the love of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.